Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, April the 17th. So you're back at NICE, he said, and the phone rings and you get a call and it says, this is the White House. The President of the United States would like to talk to you about whether he should have a NICE in America. He said, what would you say? And I said, he's got the wrong number. That was Professor Sir Michael Rawlins talking about the past decade at the helm of the UK's National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, or NICE. More on that after a few headlines from the issue of The Lancet dated April the 18th to the 24th. Our lead editorial expresses disappointment about the recent G20 summit in London, specifically its failure to highlight health in any of the outcome communiques from the meeting. It goes on to talk about how the abolition of user fees, in other words, patients who have to pay for national health services in many developing countries, has to be a priority in reducing poverty and its associated links with poor health in developing regions across the world. In research, we published the Phase 2 study about the polypill, containing a statin and three blood pressure lowering drugs, with its potential to produce cardiac outcomes for healthy individuals. Also previously published online but in print this week, the very important issue of when to initiate antiretroviral therapy for HIV treatment. This is an analysis based on 18 previously published studies in this field. Also we published a study concerning diabetic retinopathy. Unfortunately the treatment in question here, calcium dibesinate, did not have any effect in reducing clinically significant macular edema, which is often a cause of visual impairment and blindness for people with severe diabetic retinopathy. Also this week, look out for a review about mitral regurgitation and a seminar discussing the epidemiology and risk factors for the 10th biggest common killer worldwide, suicide. Now, 10 years ago saw the birth of the UK's National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, or NICE. This agency has two main functions, to give advice to the UK National Health Service about the cost-effectiveness of drugs, and also, just as importantly, the development of guidelines to help physicians in their daily clinical work. Kelly Morris has written a profile this week about NICE's chairman, Professor Sir Michael Rawlins. Coming up, you can listen to 10 minutes of highlights from the audio interview between Kelly Morris and Professor Rawlins. Take it away, Kelly. Okay, so I'm here at the um, National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, um, which is 10 years old as of last week, and I'm interviewing Professor Sir Michael Rawlins, who's been its chair since uh, inception 10 years ago. Uh, for people who don't know, it's the, the UK body that basically advises the health service on uh, the value of um, medical and public health interventions for England and Wales. Looking back over the past 10 years, what have been the s real successes for NICE and what have be been your own personal triumphs? I think there are two parts to it. Um, one, we've been very lucky, and I've been lucky. I've been lucky all my life. Napoleon said he didn't want good generals, he wanted lucky generals, and I've been in the lucky category, not the good category. And so the very first thing we ever did, in retrospect, was extraordinarily important, and we were very lucky to have the opportunity to do it. This was Rolenza. Rolenza was an inhaled flu treatment that came onto the market in the late 1990s, and it was the very first thing we were asked to look at, uh, and to look at its clinical cost-effectiveness. And we rejected it. We said it should not be used in the National Health Service. It caused a huge outcry from the manufacturers. The reason why we said no was perfectly obvious to everybody. It reduced the duration of symptoms by a day, from six days to five days when you had flu. 
So it, it was transparently not really a huge benefit to anybody. The medical profession were very opposed to it, particularly general practitioners, because they could see either themselves running ragged trying to get round everybody to give the relenza out within the first 48 hours of their symptoms, or patients would come into their waiting rooms and blow flu germs around everybody, so they, they, they were pretty opposed to it too. And we said no. So people understood why we were saying no quite easily, except the manufacturers who went berserk. And the chairman of the company uh, stormed into Downing Street and demanded of the Prime Minister that NICE be abolished. This is when he would only been in existence, six months. And Tony Blair and Frank Dobson, the Secretary of State, backed us. And they said no. NICE is here, NICE is here to stay. And having that political backing right from the very earliest stage was extraordinarily important for us. I think the great success of NICE has been, uh, more generally, I think has been two bits to it. One is we've engaged uh, huge numbers of people in the development of NICE and the work we do. I always wanted NICE to be a very much a virtual institute. Uh, and now, although we employ over 250 people, uh, it's still very much a virtual institute. We depend on the commitment, energy, enthusiasm of people in the health service, and people in British universities, patient organisations, patients themselves, and manufacturers as well, to be fair. Um, they also have contributed in many important ways. And as a result of that uh, engagement with such a broad group of people, I think what we produce is very robust, reliable, uh, and international commenters, commentators have all said that our guidance is extremely robust and unless it's robust we're dead in the water so we've always got to make sure that our, the advice we give is based on the securest foundations. What in general have been the sort of biggest difficulties that you and NICE have faced in the last 10 years? Probably the biggest difficulties are those drugs which whose benefits are not tremendous but which are very costly. And I can sympathise with people with multiple sclerosis or people with Alzheimer's disease or people with renal cancer when we say no. We want everybody to have their say, but not everybody can have their way. We live in a world in Britain and actually globally of finite resources and we have to distribute our resources uh, for healthcare in the, in, in the fairest possible way. And I think when we started, people didn't quite appreciate that, but now the professions understand that pretty well. I mean, there's the odd person who still thinks there's a bottomless bit of money, but not many. And even the public uh, accept that too. So those are where, where it gets very difficult. How to be fair to everybody, not whether we have to ration healthcare, but how do we do it fairly? And, and I think over the 10 years, the agenda's moved on uh, to a much greater extent than it was uh, in the late 1990s. The key thing that as highlighted 10 years ago was engaging with patients and the public. Unfortunately there have been a few decisions that have been really highlighted in the media, generally drugs for uh, terminal cancer, where you've had often very emotive individual patient stories being set against uh, in the institutional decision um, from NICE. How has that affected you and affected the people who work at NICE? Well, I mean it's, it's obviously distressing and one understands where they're coming from. But I always have to tell them and I tell patient organisations that we have a finite pot of money. And if we use a lot of money on a few people, we will therefore deprive a lot, many other people of cost-effective healthcare. It's a tough business. 
we've extensively engaged with patients, patient organisations. Our guidelines, for example, always include two patients, or service users as they prefer to be called. They've made an enormous contribution to the guideline. I mean, people at the start thought it was oh, being politically correct, and it wasn't that at all. They bring a perception, they bring a dimension to the health guideline that, that all the guideline, the professional members respect and welcome. There are sometimes when people have their say but can't have their way and that's I'm afraid how it's always going to be. Um, Alan Milburn said it's going to be a roller coaster. Mm. He didn't underestimate his roller coaster. <laughs> we can expect in the Lancet shortly um, a viewpoint from you on the immediate future for NICE. What are your personal career ambitions now? Well at 68 I'm not sure that I career is quite the right word. I've just drifted from one thing to another. I've, I've, uh, you know, doors have opened, doors have closed, and I've been very lucky. And I've had opportunities to do all sorts of things that when I graduated in 1965, I never dreamt I would have uh, ever done. So I've been very privileged, and I will try and continue to make a difference. I'll be doing nice for another couple of years, and then I will be gone. Okay. <laughs> and when I go, I must go and leave my successor to uh, do it. And I must. Uh, do something else. But what it's going to be, I've no idea. But as I've said, I've never planned my career. I've just drifted from one thing to another. Kelly Morris and NICE's chairman, Professor Sir Michael Rawlins. And to listen to more of that audio interview, go to the online version of the profile here on thelancet.com and click on the Web Extra audio files where you can listen to a full half-hour interview. Many thanks to Professor Rawlins and Kelly Morris and thank you all for listening. See you next week.